page of the Bible, the very, very end of the Bible. We've made it all the way to chapter 22 of Revelation, and so I mean, you can go back, and really we have been at this all the way since I, since I first came. I believe it was probably, it might have even been the first week, but perhaps the second week that I was with you, we began this study. And um, last week when we were in chapter 21, uh, we got a glimpse of our eternal home, the new heavens and the new earth. Don was mentioning that he was at a funeral uh, this last Friday, I believe it was, and the pastor was preaching from, or the minister was preaching from, um, Revelation 21, and I said, what an appropriate thing, and I've certainly used that text at funerals as well, thinking of the new heavens and the new earth, the hope that we have there. A place that will be without loss, without suffering, without pain, a place of joy, a place of celebration, a place of fellowship, not only believers together, but even seeing God face to face. We're going to hear more about that tonight. And really, our text is flowing right out of all of that. This description of the new Jerusalem, the new heavens, the new earth, really being the same place, flowing right into as we get into chapter 22, especially these first five verses or so. And so let's read it together, Revelation 22, beginning in verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on the other side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of of the spirits of the prophets has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and with your brothers, the prophets, and those who keep the words of this book. Worship God, in a sense, worship God alone, only God. Verse 10. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing with me recompense, or bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes, so that they may have the right to the tree of life, and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside of the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. So a warning here after that colon. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. 
And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord be with all. Amen. So going back to the beginning, we look at these first couple verses here. Verses 1 and 2, we have the river of life. And there's a whole lot that we could look at here in terms of connecting it to sort of the Old Testament imagery. We could look at uh, Zechariah and Ezekiel who both prophesied, these are Old Testament prophets, who prophesied that in the last days, in these days, will flow from Jerusalem in the temple a river of life. Uh, It represents nourishment and refreshment of God's people in in a dry, desert, arid climate. There is something that is especially important and vital for life with this river, and here it is flowing right out of essentially the throne of God. So lots of symbolism here, but but still I think it quite quite clearly we understand what it represents, even if the particulars are are, unclear to us. As we look at verse 2, there's also the tree of life. And so these two things are together, right? The tree is nourished by being on the banks by the river. Where else do we see a a tree of life? Where else in the Bible do we see this? In the garden, right? All the way back to Genesis. So can, can, can you see that God's design here? That the beginning of the Bible, and of course in, in, you know, in the times of the ancient church, they wouldn't have had a bound book like this, but they still understood the order of the, of the canon here. That Genesis was the beginning, and here at the end, Revelation, as this you know, ultimately is revealed, here we have this, this complete book. They would have been on scrolls or parchment. They would have looked differently, depending on the era. And yet, in God's mind, here we have the beginning of the book, these sort of bookmarks and the end here. It's just a, an incredible thing for us to remember that although, yes, this is given to John, um, Peter is an author in the scriptures, Paul and Isaiah, and we can, we can look at all the different authors, and there's a real sense in which they are writing these things, and yet God is ultimately the one united divine author who's bringing these things to us for our edification. Just an incredible thing to see how God brings it together so beautifully. Look at its leaves here. Its leaves, in verse 2, are for the healing of the nations. That language goes back to Ezekiel in Ezekiel 47, verse 12. Um, The new heavens and the new earth, which we saw last week, but now again we're we're very much still looking at that, um, they will be a place of refreshment, a place of plenty and abundance and of beauty. We must must see the beauty that is in this. God is... Uh, think about all the most beautiful things that we can imagine in this world. I mentioned on Sunday how I, I love stained glass. I'll come in here sometimes at a certain time in the afternoon when it's gleaming through. So that's something that it's designed. You know, we could look at a, a, a mountain. Uh, we could look at a river. We can see the beauty of that. And there's something that is w- within us. It, it takes joy in beauty. And uh, we get that from God. There's a little piece, uh, a little reflection of God's own beauty that we have in the Mago Day. In verses 3 through 5, and I'll kind of clump these together, there's a lot going on here, but basically the, the, the core idea here is that the curse that has once kept God's people out of the garden, have kept God's people away from his presence, it's been broken. No more. There is nothing cursed, it says. And we will see God's face. I mean, just... You know, as we look at this part, this is often called the beatific vision. Right in um, 
It's in verse 4. They will see his face. On one hand, there's a whole lot that I could say about that. On the other hand, I don't have anything to say about it. I know that might sound contradictory. There's a whole lot that we could say in terms of the significance of that, the wonder of that. And yet on the other hand, we just can't fathom that. Seeing God's face, being able to be in God's presence in that way, none of us have ever witnessed that. That's not to say we've never felt God's presence. not to say we can't feel God's presence. We know the Holy Spirit is with us. I mean, there's this, even since when we take communion or when we're, we're singing songs of worship, when we're hearing the word preached, there's a way that, that we can interact and be touched by the Holy Spirit in those ways. And that, that is very true. But to see God in this way, it's something that we, we can't fully fathom because it's, there's nothing in our experience that prepares us for that. And yet I want to pause and reflect on that for a moment. This will be our forever home. Look what it says there. The Lord will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. Never ending. It's not merely that the new heavens and new earth is kind of like an earth part two and, and maybe if things don't work out, maybe God will have to do another thing down the road. No, no, this is final. There will never be another act of redemption. There will never be another fall. There will never be any of these things. That door will be closed. That era, everything that we have known in this world will come to an end and the new heavens and the new earth will be a permanent heavens and earth, a new world for us. In verse 6, the, the text is really emphatic. Um, it's emphatic about the, the assurance of these things. He says, these words are trustworthy and true. Have no doubt, he says. These things will absolutely take place. They will absolutely unfold the way that I'm saying here. As we look at, uh, there's kind of a theme here in verses 6 and 7, and then come back in verse 10. I'm kind of bracketing these together. Can you sense the emphasis here? Even as I'm reading, I hope that it was clear enough to you, that the emphasis on the imminence of Christ's return. You know, saying that he is coming soon. Surely I'm coming. Surely these things will take place. Great emphasis on this. And we, we've talked about this a number of times going through, so I'm not necessarily going to repeat all of that. But... Um, but this is a reminder to us that God intends for his people, having th- even as we think about the generation that would have first heard this and then the 2,000 years that have passed since then, God wants his people to live with an expectancy that God might come at any moment. He doesn't tell us when he's going to come exactly. We don't have a day. We don't have a time. And that's by God's design as well. We don't know the day of our king's return, but he desires us to live with his coming in view. And I think that that really goes back even to the message I preached on Sunday about living for the kingdom, of not being bogged down with the things of this world, uh, not, not thinking and living as if the things of this world is all that there is. God has us in this world. We use the things of this world. We can enjoy the things of this world. There's a lot of good that we can think about. And yet, we should have our view set on our coming king. Surely, he says, I am coming soon. In verses 8 through 9, John reminds us uh, of his authorship here. He speaks in the first person. He always like that. I, John. He's like, I'm still here. This is still me. And uh, he's going to, to give us this little discourse here. He's, uh, he's so taken by everything that he's seen. And can you imagine? I mean, all the different things that he's seen here. He's so overwhelmed and, and moved emotionally, understandably, that he falls down, in a sense, to worship, right? And the angel rebukes him. Get up! The angel says, no, 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 no. Don't do that to me. Worship God. Worship God alone. And, and I'm taken by that just as a side here that we, we often have, just like last week I think I talked about 
we often have misconceptions about heaven, right? And I think we certainly do. Um, there's a lot of misconceptions about angels, too. And sometimes we just don't know what to do with them. Maybe we don't have misconceptions as much as just mystery. What in the world are angels? And, and what are they for? And how do, how do we relate to them? You know, are they just sort of floaty people up there? What are they? And there's a few things we could pick out from here. Um, angels are heavenly beings. They, they belong to another realm. Now, sometimes they enter, and sometimes they are here on earth. We see that in the scriptures. But, but they exist to serve God. Why do angels exist? Here, it says, I am a fellow servant with you, your brothers, the prophets. So do not worship me. I am not worthy of worship. Worship God alone. In verses uh, 10 and 11, the angel tells uh, John, don't seal up this book. Do not hide the things that I've revealed to you. Do not hide these things. Give them to the church. Let them be seen. Let them be read. Let them be studied. The reason this is significant is that the book of Daniel, he was told the opposite. Daniel was told, seal these things up. It's not yet time. I've revealed them to you. And one day, and of course now we have them, but for a time, Daniel was told to seal these things. But now, as we are in the time of the kingdom, now as we are in the time of the Messiah, and the time, ultimately, where all we are waiting for is his return, he says, do not hide them. Do not seal them up. And um, the expectation is that he would be sharing them, and ultimately that becomes clear as we get to the very end, verses uh, 18 and following. Um, Trying to think how much I have time to cover here. Let's look at verses 12 and 13 then. We have Christ, the the righteous and and sovereign judge who is coming, and the language that's used here is really particular to make those very points, that he is righteous, that he is sovereign. In other words, that he has the powers to make good on his promises. He's the alpha and the omega, that is the beginning and the end, that means he, he holds all things in his hands, the language that would often be used here in the ancient world, he is the sovereign Lord, he will do what he has promised to do. And so what does he promise to do? Well, well, we'll get there more in a moment. In, uh, in verse 16, John spoke um, in the first person. Now we hear Jesus speaking directly, which is interesting. Okay, Jesus has ascended. Right? Jesus is not on earth. Jesus is not hanging out on Patmos with John. But here, Jesus is going to speak directly in verse 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. And, and he goes on. Uh, this has certainly not been the norm, and so, so we should sort of perk up when we notice this is Jesus speaking in the first person. We do have a few little references here and there elsewhere in the Bible where this is the case. In fact, even going back to the beginning of Revelation, we saw some of that in the letters to the churches. This Jesus is the same one who was crucified, the same one who was buried, who was raised again. It is, it is he who is testifying. It is he who is speaking and giving this word here. How, um, how else does this establish? Again, this is, this is the same old Jesus here. This is the same one that we want to be thinking about. What, is, what, what background does he give here in these verses? What's significant about what he says in verse 16? He says he's the descendant of David. What does that matter? Yeah. 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 Everyone catch that? So, so this goes back to, again, it, it is, it's showing the fulfillment of all that God has promised before, the royal lineage through David, ultimately the line of David, 
Um, what God has said ultimately going back to 2 Samuel chapter 7 and the Davidic covenant and all these things that God would do what he has said that there would always be one reigning on the throne of David. So a whole lot of import here from the Old Testament um, that's important for us to know. I mean, why else would Jesus mention this? Why would John, ultimately the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, mention this? Because it's reaffirming that God has done what he promised he would do. This Davidic king, it is he who is coming again. He is the bright and morning star. We've talked about that in the past, the Old Testament import of that. It is this same Jesus, the one who is fulfilling God's covenant. Uh, this is just this is really weighty stuff. In verse 17, he gives the Bible's final invitation. If we think about it in terms of what we would often call a sort of uh, evangelistic invitation. He says, let the, let the one who is thirsty come. Do you see that in verse 17? The one who is thirsty, let them come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Remember, this is of grace. It's going to end on a note of grace when you look at verse 21. This is of grace. Let him take the water of life without price. It's not something we paid for. It's something he has done. Something we receive through belief, through faith. We hold it with repentance. And uh, just, just an incredible thing here, ending with this word, all who would come, come, come here, come receive. Again, all the more reason, John, don't seal these things up. Send them out. Yet this is also a reminder to us as we look at verse 17 and then what we're going to see in verse 18, that our final destinies await us here. There are two paths before us, and they could not be more stark in the last really three chapters. And here it is ending on the one more time. Remember that there is the one who is thirsty who will come and will be filled, and yet there are the others. In fact, let's just look at verse 18. This final warning in the Bible. And he warns against changing the message that's been given either by addition or omission. But here, the, um, just an incredible thought for us as we, as we reflect on this together. Jesus, in, in, verse, um, in verse 20, Jesus testifies the surety of his return. Uh, these are the words that have so often been spoken by God's people throughout the ages. Look there at the end of verse 20. Come, Lord Jesus. You'll see that all over the place in religious art. Um, you'll see theologians reflecting on it. You'll see pastors and common church people um, re- uh, repeating that to one another, praying with that, closing with that. I'm going to do that in a moment. In fact, I just think there's, there's, there's no better way for us to end this study than to pray those words. Come, Lord Jesus, come. So before I give the benediction, which I will with verse 21, basically, what, what thoughts do you have? Maybe, I mean, primarily, we're looking at verse tw- or chapter 22 here, but, but reflections or thoughts or insights as we've gone through this study that you'd like to, like to share that you think might be edifying, or again, questions that you'd like to ask. Anybody? Yeah, David. That's right, yeah, on, on either side. That's right. That's right. Yep, well said. Did everyone catch that? So there's, on one end, it's speaking in the singular, the tree of life, and yet it's showing on either side and lining sort of the banks. And so a tree of life is almost a category, right? Sort of trees of life. So yeah, good, good eye, David. Absolutely. 
Yeah, and, and we could go into some of the details of that, right? You know, we talked about their leaves are for healing, but they've got 12 kinds of fruit, and we know the number 12 is symbolic and, and significant, um, yielding its fruit each month, so it doesn't just yield once a year or twice a year. Um, this is a whole lot better than a bumper crop. I mean, this is every month it's giving its fruit, so yeah, that, thank you, Dave. Yeah, yeah, Bob. He's in good company. And with those who heed and remember the truth contained in the words of this book, let's amplify. Yeah. Worship God. The Amen. angel gives the command. Worship God. Amen. Yeah, general word of, of uh, hopefully everyone could catch most of that. Bob, you've got a good, good voice here. Uh, but certainly, yeah, this word of affirmation, encouragement, yeah, to, to a fellow servant. Amen. Other, other thoughts or questions or insights? If, again, with more time, I would have gone back to verse 15. Really, it's verse 15 that's giving sort of the, the one path here outside of the dog, sorcerers, sexually immoral murderers, and idolaters, and so on. And then we get down to, to those who would, who would receive through faith. We could look there in verse 17 and so on. Um, yeah, there's a lot that we could look at here. Any, anything else? Questions, insights? Okay. All right. Well, then I will leave, leave you with this benediction. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. May the Lord bless you, and we will pray. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Have a good evening. God bless.